Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Sheila Woolley, the Chief Nursing Officer and Vice President of Patient Care Services at Wentworth Douglas Health System in Dover, New Hampshire. Wentworth Douglas Health System includes Wentworth Douglas Hospital, a 178-bed nonprofit acute care hospital that employs 2,300 individuals with 1,700 FTEs, has 50,000 visits annually, and is a level 3 trauma center. The health system also includes Wentworth Health Partners, which includes 23 primary care and specialty practices and two express care facilities. As we discussed during the podcast, although Wentworth Douglas is an acute care hospital, it has clinical affiliations with world-class academic medical centers that enable patients to access some of the best physicians in the region while staying at home on the New Hampshire seacoast. In this podcast, we discuss Sheila's career in nursing, the role of the CNO, how the nursing profession has evolved, and conclude with a discussion about leadership. This is a valuable interview for any aspiring healthcare leader to listen to because Sheila really demonstrates through her career how leadership in healthcare transcends parochial roles and the future of healthcare delivery will require a team-based approach. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Thanks for listening. And here is Sheila Woolley. So welcome to the Ford, Sheila. Well, thank you, Professor. Uh, you earned an Associate of Science in Nursing from Vermont College. Why did you go to Vermont College, and why did you choose nursing? Well, it was really rather a circuitous route. Um, I started out in psychology at the University of Denver, and uh, oh, okay. it was the first time I had ever left home and probably wasn't mature enough to deal with it and skied a little too much. So my father suggested I find a real academic institution where I could learn something. So uh, I I looked at Vermont College. There was a nursing program not far from where we used to live in the summer. And it was a two-year program. At the time, the school was all women. And I thought it might be a less enticing environment for me in Montpelier being way up in the woods. The only school around was Norwich University. Okay a men's military college, uh, and they had had a great reputation for the nursing program, and I thought, not that I always wanted to be a nurse, but I thought, well, this might be something interesting to do. So that's how I ended up at Vermont College. Interesting. So it wasn't like a lifetime goal? It was, okay. No, actually, my father was a physician, and I thought I wanted to be a physician, but started out a little rough, so thought nursing was probably the first thing I should do and get my feet wet there. Okay. So you did an associate's degree there, and then you went to Georgetown University Medical Center. So jumped from Montpelier down to to D.C. Well, my roommate, who was from New Jersey, uh, and I were pretty interested in traveling and looking for other adventures. And 
both knew we wanted to be in a large academic medical center. My dad had gone to Georgetown Medical School. I had heard a lot about Georgetown. My roommate Katie really wanted to go to Johns Hopkins, so we thought, I'll go to Georgetown, she'll go to Hopkins, we'll be half an hour, an hour apart, and uh, we would just have a great time. So that's how I ended up at Georgetown. Okay, neat. How did your first organization go about integrating you into the nursing practice? Did you did you have a mentor or mentors, and was it a formal process or informal mostly? Back in that those days, nursing had great internships. Um, they're very expensive. They were at least three months. Uh, Georgetown had a great one. Um, you worked with the preceptor for three months and really had a lot of training, a lot of didactics, because especially if you went to a small school like Vermont College and had one hospital to do your practicums in, you really did not see a lot. And the the hospitals knew that, so they really tried to accommodate your learning needs individually. So it was really great. It wasn't necessarily a mentor at that time. It was really more of a preceptor. Okay, so a um, formal teacher. Right, kind of, okay. right, and many of them. You okay. know, I ended up on a surgical unit, so we had clinical educators on the units who took you under their wing and did formal and informal education. And then each unit had what we used to call in those days was a head nurse who managed the unit, managed the staff, managed their educational needs, their competencies, and things like that. And I'm, to this day, I can still remember her. Her name was Joan Bowen, and she was she could be considered a mentor. She was a she was a great head nurse. Took me under her wing, and I learned a lot from Joan. Was the field what you expected coming out of college? Was, well, was there anything that surprised you about it once you were into it full time? I really didn't have any expectations because I didn't do a lot of research on what it meant to be a nurse. Okay. What I was struck by, and I think I was very fortunate to end up in Academic Medical Center, was the collaboration between the disciplines, the teamwork, and the education that was afforded you to on-the-job training, CEUs, being able to attend grand rounds. It's, you know, because there were so many residents and interns and fellows, learning was just something that was part of the mission. And so it was, it was a wonderful experience, wonderful experience. Particularly as a brand new, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Even though after those three months, they didn't have the rigor that we have today regarding nursing standards and nursing ratios and things like that. So it really was, you got thrown into it. I can remember 24 patients, two nurses, and one charge nurse, and that was really what it was like. Okay. So a little bit of a baptism by fire. Yeah, yeah. Nice. All right. So you left Georgetown, and, and you went all the way across the country to Stanford, California, where you worked as a staff nurse at Stanford Medical Center. What drew you to the West Coast? Was this more wanderlust and kind of? Well, a little bit. Um, actually, my family, my parents were divorced. My dad lived in San Francisco. My mom lived in Boston. So by, being bi-coastal was something I was pretty familiar with. Again, probably a bit of wanderlust, but recognize that Stanford had, again, one of really great nurse residency programs. Um, they were doing a lot in cardiac transplant at the time, and I found that very, very exciting. And so thought, why not? So I uh, went to Stanford and uh, again, academic medical center, incredibly great experience. And it was fascinating being on the West Coast. The West Coast at that time was very jealous of the East Coast academia. So it was really interesting to be in the Stanford uh, environment. 
And how are the hospitals different, say, from Georgetown to Stanford? Was, well, was there any big difference, or was it just another big medical center? Big medical center. It, it seemed to be, I think, the history that goes with New England and the East Coast. You know, the schools have been around since the 1800s. Stanford's relatively new. Lots of competition with the University of California. While I was there, there were discussions that they should have some closer alignment, but I think because of the chiefs and because of uh, some of the politics, that was never going to happen. It almost seemed a little more hands-off, laissez-faire than the East Coast, where it's a little more uptight and rigid. That That's what I found. It seemed to be a little more innovative. It could have just been the floor I was working on, but it was a little, it was a little different. It was okay. a little bit different. So while you were there, you went on to finish your Bachelor of Science in, in Nursing at the University of San Francisco. What made you decide to continue your education at that time? Well, I knew having an associate's was not going to lead me anywhere where I wanted to go. I, by now, I knew I loved nursing and that I really wanted to open some doors. The, most of the people that I worked with had their bachelors. I thought it was a great time to go back to school. University of San Francisco was uh, recruiting nurses who didn't have their bachelors. They were making it very attractive to go back to school, and I, I knew that was something that I had to do. So you had, at this point, this was kind of a commitment. Right. You decided, right. this is the career I want to mm-hmm. pursue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But shortly after earning your bachelors, you then came back to the East Coast and went even further in your education. You pursued a master of, uh, master's of public health at Boston University. What made you decide to pursue the MPH? I worked in at University of California at San Francisco, and many of the nurses that I worked with, m- the majority of the nurses that I worked with, had their master's in nursing science. And I thought, there's more to it than theory and things like that. There's a bigger picture. In health, I saw it as healthcare rather than nursing. I thought nursing was a bit siloed, and in those days, it was it was all it was about nursing, and that wasn't necessarily my philosophical dream. I felt it was more it needed to be more comprehensive team, really looking at the family, patient-centered care. Invo- because I were, had worked in transplant, I knew the involvement of the family, shared decision making. Um, so I thought getting an MPH would give me a broader view of the world, and I believe it did. And it, it, Boston was BU was a great school to go to because I had applied to Harvard and BU. Um, I didn't get accepted at Harvard, but at BU, many many of the Harvard professors moonlight, and so it was just it was a fabulous opportunity. And I really I enjoyed the courses tremendously, and I'm. I'm very, very glad I did, especially where we are today in healthcare. I feel like I'm well positioned versus just having nothing wrong with MSNs, but right. I, I feel that I had a broader picture of the whole healthcare world. Interesting. And, and, and it definitely, I mean, the trend today is definitely in that direction. It's kind of, you are ahead of the curve. Even nursing programs today, when you're looking at, you know, you've got your doctorate programs are all over the board, you know, doctoral nursing practice, or it's administration, or it's education, or it's population health, or health analytics. So yeah, I think for some reason, I feel confident that I saw that as a great, great 
track. Okay, so after earning your, your MPH, you started working in a series of administrative and leadership roles, and uh, you, you headed back out to California where you worked for an organization called Dialysis Associates. And this seems to kind of be a turning point maybe for, for you, yeah. where many of the jobs that you work worked after that had something to do with nephrology. Yes. Was it, was, it, was, there a, was it just kind of random chance that that was where you wound up, or did you have an interest in that? It, I think it was random. Dialysis Associates was a contract agency that provided dialysis services to facilities that needed additional help or didn't have their own acute dialysis program. So it was really, it was a very autonomous position. When I look back on it now, it was incredibly scary. You didn't know what you didn't know, and sometimes it was like being a pioneer or a maverick or a cowboy, and that today still frightens me, and I just thank God nothing ever happened to my patients. <laughs> but it was a great experience and uh, a wonderful experience to learn the business aspect of it. So it really did open open doors in the future, the whole nephrology the whole nephrology line did, So, but it was totally random. Okay, so you spent some time with Dialysis Associates, then you moved over to the University of California, where you were an administrative nurse for the Kidney Pancreas Transplant Unit. You said earlier you had worked in transplant? I had worked in cardiac transplant in okay. uh, at Stanford. I actually remember my first heart transplant patient's name. And I thought the world of transplant was just fascinating. One of the reasons was because it was a, a multidisciplinary approach to care. And it was also about shared decision-making with patients, which today is very popular and which I find incredibly fascinating and think it's exactly where we need to go with population health. So I was actually the, the head nurse of the acute hemodialysis unit. And what we did is we dialyzed patients in preparation for kidney transplant and then post-transplant while they're waiting for their kidneys to kick in. And the next, the head nurse position opened on the kidney pancreas unit, and I moved into that. And so that's, I think that's how it all started. And that was a great, wonderful growth opportunity. I had a fabulous mentor, Helen Ripple, mm. and she was just, she was the one, I think, one of the turning points. She was the CNO. I had no idea what a CNO was prior to me getting there, but she was an incredibly visible, authentic CNO who encouraged her nurse managers and to grow and was so well-respected by the medical staff that I was fortunate to really be there. So as a mentor, what, would you, what, are, what does a good mentor do? I think they give you opportunities that you wouldn't necessarily have in your day-to-day operations. So in an academic medical center, you have chiefs of services, and we were having a little problem with two of the chiefs. And so Helen took it upon herself to ask me to attend this meeting between the two chiefs and herself. So she afforded me opportunities like that. She also saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, which I find today when I mentor nurses. I, I see that. I can say to someone, you know, you're either going to go to the right or to the left. Choose to go to the right, you're going to go into administration. You choose to go to the left, you're probably going to go into arbitration because you can't get over some of the 
the flexibility and some of the issues that we can't resolve at the moment and learn to live with it and roll with it. And that's what Helen really taught me. I think because Helen was not a typical MSN grad, she liked that in me and, and, and so maybe gave me a little more attention. Okay. Um, so I was very, very fortunate for that, I believe. Okay. So you spent, you spent some time at the University of California and then you took a job, an, another big move, down to Dallas where you were the nursing director for the renal urology gynecology division of Children's Medical Center of Dallas. Uh, why did you make the big jump to Dallas? I, I get the California-Boston connection now, but what was the, how did you wind up in Dallas? And it's very different. Yeah, it's great. My husband at the time was an engineer and he wanted to work on the superconducting super collider in Waxahachie, Texas. It was a huge dream of his. So I had never lived in Texas. I had never even been to Texas. And I thought, why not? This will be exciting. So that's actually why we ended up going to Texas. And I started looking for a position and a recruiter got my resume and introduced me to Children's. I went down, I interviewed for two days and uh, they offered me the position. And again, just Children's was a, not a new facility, but Dallas was really booming and growing dramatically. And Children's had a very visionary CEO and COO at the time. And they brought in McKinsey to look at their service lines. And what they were doing is they developed practice performance clusters, what we call PPCs, uh, which is really a service line, you know, a product line, service line, a business unit. And what they, the, the model was a, a triad leadership. It was a nursing director, a medical director, and an administrative lead. And I was hired as the nursing director. Okay. So I was fortunate enough because Children's was really hiring some really bright, bright MBAs. We had like, f we had five PPCs, service lines, and four of the five were Stanford MBAs. Okay. Uh, wow. And they, it, and so we met as a group and it was kind of, you know, it was, it was unfortunate for the areas that weren't service lines because we were treated very differently than everybody else. We were very special. and But it was incredible, the learning and the dynamics and the education that went on. And our COO was the person that kind of led all of that. And I just felt so fortunate to be a nurse in that role because I was learning. I was just learning so much. But the other piece of it was the whole nephrology and transplant piece. And I think people who live on the East Coast don't necessarily recognize the work that goes on at UT Southwestern. And there's numerous Nobel laureates there. It's an incredible medical center. We all know of Parkland because of President Kennedy. But the opportunities that are afforded you in that medical center, you see everything. And the medical school and the research facility is fabulous. And I was, again, very fortunate because my medical director was a huge name in nephrology and had worked with some of the premier cutting-edge researchers down there that I became familiar with and then began to understand research and what lab work looked like. And it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And as service lines 
grew or they lost somebody, I was able to move into the cardiology service line and work with them. And we did everything for kids. We did transplants. We did everything. And again, fabulous, fabulous experience. Um, and then spent some time in neurosurgery. And neurosurgery was very different because neurosurgery was a private practice. It wasn't part of children. So it was private physicians who did neurosurgical procedures on people from all over the world. And I was their nursing director and I was also their business person. And I really had to learn a lot. And I worked very closely with my COO. And I'll never forget the first time the neurosurgeons wanted to buy a piece of equipment. And it was, I don't know at the time, it was probably like $2.5 million. And I needed to put an RFP. I needed to write uh, an RFP. I had no idea how to write an RFP. And I made the mistake of not asking anybody. And I basically developed the RFP by Googling it or, and working with the sales rep. And I brought it to my COO. And I'll never forget, he said to me, don't ever use the word state of the art. And uh, to this day, when I, when I look at an RFP, I'm like always m- reminded of that. So I learned a great deal from, from him and um, from that group. And it was, again, I, I get so attracted to these multidisciplinary work teams. Um, we had a neuro-oncology clinic where we had neuropsychiatrists just for children. We did brain tumors on kids. And although it sounds terrible, the results were remarkable. And today, you know, obviously it's much more sophisticated, but it's, 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 there are some really great results dealing with children. And I ended up reporting to the COO, which as a nurse is unheard of hmm. and almost blasphemy or heresy. But Was your role dual-handed as, yes. as, as the yes. nursing director and the business yes. director? Yes, so I had a matrix to the nursing, to okay. the CNO. Uh-huh. She wasn't very fond of and direct line to the COO. But it was, it was a great experience. It was a great experience. So you, starting with dialysis associates and moving on from there, you were basically working your way up through kind of leadership positions at that point. Had you held leadership prior, positions prior to that, prior to the dialysis? Um, you know, I had been a charge nurse and a nurse manager, but nothing where I was managing other managers okay. or, you know, not in the director role where I had three or four managers reporting to me. Yeah. What was it like to transition from uh, a primary focus on direct patient care and laying hands on patients, as, as we say, and, and into a more of a supervisory and managerial role for you? I think it really was an issue of time management and competing priorities. And it just, you know, when you take care of patients, you kind of have your day planned. And at 12 hours, it usually ends. But this whole new world was just, it was overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. And I was extremely fortunate to have an executive, well, at that time it was an administrative assistant, work with me who I don't know how I would have done it without her. She just kept me extremely, I, I tend to be more of a visionary and not at all good about data collection or organization. And she just helped me. And to this day, I know the value of those people. They, they, basically run the organization. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What important lessons did you learn as you transitioned into these these increasing levels of leadership? I think it was really how much I did not know 
I never felt like I knew everything, but when I got into management, I was just astounded at the amount that I did not know. But I was also, it was interesting to see how being somewhat intuitive, you can manage through situations and being someone who enjoys being with people and working with people and developing a team and knowing that you can't do it alone, I think helped me be successful. And being authentically able to say, I'm not sure I know how to do this. Can you help me? And seeking out resources. I think recognizing that you cannot possibly know everything. So seeking out resources and hiring the best of the best. I remember Kennedy used to say that, that uh, it wasn't he, but he hired the best of the best. And I really think that that's what, that's what people need to do. You just cannot, it, take, it does take a village. You can't do it alone. You spent eight years in Dallas at the Children's Medical Center, moving from nursing director of renal urology and gynecology division up to interim director of cardiothoracic division to finally, as you said, the director of neuroscience services. How many staff were you responsible for when you were the director of the cardiothoracic division? About. I think I probably had 10 direct reports and then under them we had a outpatient clinic, we had a transplant program, and we had a cardiac unit for the kids. So there were lots of FPEs under those people. Okay. So at this point you're, you were a second-line supervisor, managing managers. Correct. How was that making that transition from you know, being a super, you know, that's a big jump for, right. for most folks, make, making the step from supervising directly to supervising supervisors. What was that like for you? It was a bit difficult because I think I naively believed everybody was doing this for the same reason I was doing it, and I found that that wasn't quite true. So I had very high expectations that people would always want to achieve the best and work to the highest level, and it was difficult when I found people, they didn't really want to do that. They wanted to come in, they wanted to do their job, and but they didn't really want to push the bar. And that was difficult. That was that was difficult for me. And Is that something you just naturally do? I think so. I'm not sure my CFO would say that, but um, <laughs> I think so. And I, I think the other thing that was difficult is that my vision has always been very patient-centered, that that's what we do in hospitals, that's what we do in healthcare. And many of theirs was not, and it was siloed, and that was difficult. And they didn't necessarily want to work as a team. That was very hard. So some people left. Some people, we had to move out. And then just hiring people who had some of the same energy and some of the same passion and conviction, it, then that was, that was easy. That was really easy. That, and that part, that part is so much fun. Building your team. Yeah, that's yeah. so much fun. How did your experience as the director of the cardiothoracic division prepare you for your role as the chief nursing officer and vice president of patient care services here at Wentworth Douglas? I think the complexity of the role helped prepare me for what would would be presented when I came to Wentworth Douglas. You needed to be flexible and nimble because things could change in a matter of seconds and the strategic business unit may be looking at you think you're going one way and then they call you and say, no, we're going to go this way. So being flexible, being nimble really helped me adapt. Um, and I think working with 
physician colleagues and being able to understand them and speak their language and and understand their passion for what they did, um, I think really helped me when I came here. So in 1999, you were hired into your current position as the chief nursing officer and vice president of patient care services for Wentworth Douglas. What made you decide to come back to New England at this point? Well, I was born in New England. I love New England. We always came back home for on our vacations. And at that time, my son was three. So I, I knew I wanted to become a vice president. I knew, okay. it, knew, I knew it was time in my career that I wanted to become a vice president. I had interviewed at two other places that just wasn't going to work. And I, the recruiter called me. I came back here for an interview. The people were just amazing. It was palpable. And the CEO was relatively new, and he he presented a vision that I could just immediately align with. And it was a, it was a new world order, so to speak. And we were a pretty new executive team. And I was really excited to be on that. So I didn't give it a second second thought. Yeah. And I really didn't know anything about the Seacoast. And so I just jumped into it. Excellent. Wentworth Douglas Hospital is located in Dover, New Hampshire. For listeners who are not familiar with the area, uh, can you briefly explain where Dover is and anything about the geography that maybe influences the hospital and its kind of strategic position? Dover, New Hampshire is it's about an hour away from Boston, which is great. It's on the seacoast of New Hampshire. New Hampshire doesn't really have a lot of seacoast. And it's very close to Maine, which people always find interesting because people who don't know New England think it's always snowing and cold in Maine, but uh, it's really not. It's really quite beautiful. And it's it's really a four seasons place because you have oceans, you have lakes, and you have mountains all within an hour's traveling distance. It's a wonderful place to raise families. There's hardly any traffic, um, but you can get to Boston in a in a snap and many people actually commute to Boston um, and live here okay. so I thought it, and I so I th- just thought it was a great place to be and raise a family in a wonderful progressive hospital so speaking of, of Wentworth Douglas in particular we're going to talk a little bit about what characterizes Wentworth Douglas going to give us a sense of size and kind of scope well, Wentworth Douglas, um, it's interesting because Wentworth Douglas is going to celebrate its 200th anniversary next year. And um, it started as a city hospital and then became a non-for-profit hospital. I can't remember what year. But we've it's really grown over the past probably 18, 19 years since Greg, our CEO, has been here. We've developed really a regional cancer center that has affiliations with Mass General, some of their GYN oncologists. We have some of uh, Mass General psychiatrists working with some of our patients. It's really a very, very robust cancer center with clinical trials. We also have the largest number of births in the Seacoast on our women and children center. We have a clinical affiliation with Dartmouth with Children's Hospital at Dartmouth, we have a clinic here, so the kids and their families don't have to travel to Manchester or to Dartmouth. We have a clinical affiliation with Mass General in trauma, in vascular, and in in oncology, which is just wonderful. Um, Their surgeons come here. So is that what a clinical affiliation means? Yes. Is is the the faculty from 
mm-hmm. from Mass General or from Dartmouth actually come. Absolutely. So you're getting seen at Wentworth Douglas by Mass yes. Gen. So you don't have to, you know, make the trip down there. Or, you know, you may, for example, trauma. If you have a terrible trauma, we may stabilize you here, but then send you to Mass General or to Portland, depending on who has beds, and then you receive that type of quaternary care, and then they send them back home. But one one of the things that I think is fabulous about it for us is we do grand rounds with our Mass General colleagues in trauma and in oncology and in our chest clinic. So they they come up at least monthly in all of those areas. So... So for me, it's great because that's the piece of academia I miss. And so I'm able to attend those grand rounds. Anybody's able to attend them in the hospital. What are are grand rounds? Grand rounds are case studies, usually of patient scenarios. Um, We've had some fabulous grand rounds way back to when the god-awful bombing of the marathon happened. Mm. Um, Dr. King was presenting. He's a Mass General trauma surgeon. He had actually run the marathon. The bomb happened. He then went into the OR for 24 hours, and his stories are just amazing. So Grand Rounds presents patient situations. You know, this is how I would have done it. How would have you done it, doctor? How would have you have done it, nurse? And really, it's a great opportunity to just sit with your colleagues and think about what's best practice and how could we do it. And sometimes it's something you may never see, but you may see it once and you remember. You remember those little things. And they said, that's how they do it. It's also great because if... We also do some telehealth with them. So for our stroke patients in our ED, we have a camera. And if if we're not quite sure about something, we can actually put the camera on the patient. We'll have one of the neurologists down at Mass General viewing it, and they'll give us their opinion. And we can take much, much better care of our patients that way. So it's it's a great, it's a really good relationship, I think. Interesting. Same thing with Dartmouth. We do... We do neonatal rounds with them. We do transport rounds with them because we transport kids up there. If we have a child that's been delivered that we can't manage here, we send them up to their level three NICU up there, and then we review those. We review every single case that we send out. So it's a great learning experience for the obstetricians and the nurses. So your title is Chief Nursing Officer and Vice President of Patient Care Services. Let's let's talk. I, let's. I guess we can split that and kind of talk. First, about kind of what does a chief nursing officer do generally? And then we can talk about some of the other departments and responsibilities that maybe aren't typically part of a CNO job description. Is that a fair way to think about it? Or sure. Should, so, okay. No. Um, so what's... What, how, would you, how would you describe, I mean, what, what is a, a chief nursing officer's role typically? I, well, the role operationally has lots of facets, but I think most importantly the role is to be an advocate for the care and the of patients and as well as your staff because recognizing staff engagement and staff satisfaction will help you achieve improved patient satisfaction and patient experience and patient engagement, but it will also help you achieve better patient outcomes because those staff who are engaged and feel responsible and accountable for the work that they do won't miss those very important moments when a patient needs to be turned or a patient needs um, a second check or just to call somebody and say, hey, something doesn't look quite right. It's going the extra step. And for me, 
I think that's what the role of the chief nursing officer is, is opening those doors, removing the barriers, so the people who do the work can do the work in the most, in, in the best atmosphere to allow them to take care of the, the people that they, they encounter. And it's not just encountering the people, it's, it's the IT folks, it's the food and nutrition folks, because it really is everybody that that patient experiences from the time they either enter our practices or they go to express care or they become a patient in our hospital. So I, I think that really is my role because the reality of it is that's what I do and the people on the front end are the heroes taking care of the people that entrust us with their lives. When you came and spoke to my class a few weeks ago, you, you listed a few responsibilities of the CNO, one of which was uh, promote a professional nursing practice. What, is, what does that mean? Well, to me, that means ensuring that staff have a voice. And in nursing, we call that shared governance. And so it's really having a model where nursing has a voice, that they're able to be responsible for their staffing models. They're responsible for ensuring their ratios are being met. They're responsible for how they practice their relationships. You know, it's certainly giving them some guidelines and giving them some direction, but they know best how to manage their unit. So if they say to me, Sheila, I think we need X number of nurses, but we need some LNAs and we need some transport people to really make this function well. I don't, I don't usually second guess them. So it's also giving them the opportunity to go back to school if they need to learn. It's providing them with on-site education. Years ago, the nurses couldn't go to the continuing medical education series. And so it was opening that door because there shouldn't be any barriers. We work side by side with each other. So uh, nurses should be able to go to those. And so it's, it's developing that environment for people. We have a clinical ladder program. Actually, it's called a professional recognition program now where nurses can achieve a different level, somewhat like a ladder, but we actually changed it into a bonus program. So we also provide them with education so they can become certified in their specialty area. So those that's how I believe. Can you give an example of that? Um, so like our oncology nurses. Our okay. oncology nurses have to do so many hours and then pass a test to become ONS certified. Okay. And so we do study groups. You know, we allow them to have some time to study. And depending on what the budget looks like that year, sometimes we pay for that and we can pay for that. And other times we help them do it on their own. We've done cohorts with Franklin Pierce to so the nurses can finish their shift and then go to class. That's been very successful. We've been able to raise our baccalaureate rate from about 34% to 61% in the past six, seven years. So that's, you know, and it's also providing them with additional opportunities outside direct patient care. Um, we have many nurses who teach at many of the universities and some of the associates programs in the area. And that's, you know, that's just another great avenue for them. So what's the advantage of, you mentioned you've been trying to move the organization towards more back, baccalaureate level nursing. Why Why is that an advantage to the organization? Well, Linda Aiken, probably 11, 12 years ago, did research looking at the outcomes of patients when cared for by 
nurses who had baccalaureate degrees and nurses who didn't have baccalaureate degrees. And although there still remains great controversy about this, her research showed that baccalaureate prepared nurses and patient outcomes were much improved. So there's been a movement afront through the Institute of Medicine, um, which is a think tank that just looks at practices and things like that, that suggested that by 2020, 80% of our direct care providers should be baccalaureate prepared. It also supports some of the magnet initiatives. So we have identified that as a goal for ourselves, and so we're well on our way. Magnet? Well, both. Magnet and um, 80% of our staff to achieve that. And, you know, initially when I came, there weren't as many programs available to nurses. UNH was probably our closest, and that was... That was a difficult program for people who were working. Since then, they've modified and they've changed their hours. The system, the UNH system has become much more flexible. There's a lot more online. Frank, as I mentioned, Franklin Pierce, Granite State. So there's a, there's a, the schools have done a lot to accommodate the working nurse to go back and get their degree. You mentioned the phrase shared governance, and I've read some of that a number of times in, in various nursing literature. Can you explain that what that means? I would need to look uh, at what the exact definition of, but shared governance really is about having a voice in the decision making of where you work. So it really could be applied to anything. Oh, okay. I think you see it in many of the dot coms. You see it at Google. Okay. You know, it, it's really flattening the hierarchy. Okay. I'll never forget about twelve years ago, we were hiring a director of a area that's. Uh, does not report to me. And the nurses in the area had written a letter to the vice president of that area saying they would like to be included in the interview of this new person. And that person at that time thought that was quite odd. Why would they want to do that? And I said, well, because that's the person that they'll be reporting to. That's the report person who'll be leading that division. They want to make sure that that person has the same passion and thoughts and desires that they do. So we've really been very fortunate here because not only do our nurses participate on their units in something called unit-based councils, which look at quality, looks at staffing, looks at all of the operations of the unit, but we've opened that up and some of our non-nursing departments are now participating in that. And it's, it's really great to see people have, have a voice. They're very engaged. And again, as I said, a couple of times, the direct care people or the frontline people, not even taking care of the patient, they know their jobs and they know how to be more effective and how to be more cost effective better than any manager does. And I think we need to listen to them. And I think in so doing, you'll have a better organization. One of the other responsibilities you you said during your talk was facilitate, coach, encourage, and mentor staff and managers in developing a capacity for performance improvement. How do you, how does that manifest itself here at, at Wentworth Douglas? Well, we're very fortunate because we have a whole department that's based on Lean Six Sigma called Operations Excellence. And it really is all about, about performance improvement, rapid performance improvement. And we have a CPO, Chief Performance Officer, who has five black belts in his department and then trains green belts from from our staff on an annual basis. 
and we look at what our strategic plan is, what our goals are, what our performance dashboard is, and we also look at what some of our risk mitigation strategies are, and then we utilize those tools called OE projects to improve the performance in many areas. So each of our managers has accountability for one or two projects every year in their area to improve efficiencies, improve patient SAT, improve quality, improve, you know, we usually use the triple aim service quality and cost and, right. and use, use that as our guiding principles for the projects that we're going to work on. Okay. And uh, we like to have those projects support our strategic plan. You also talked about promote and establish an environment of patient-centered care in which the standards of service excellence are implemented, evaluated, and sustained. This patient-centered care is a, a word that, or, or a phrase that's, that's shown up a lot in the last few years. What does that, what does that mean to you, and, and how do you go about creating an environment of patient-centered care? It really is about recognizing the patient as an individual. Because what happens when you either come into a hospital or even a healthcare environment, sometimes who you are, your cultural norms, your experiences, your goals aren't taken into consideration. It, we, we, we sometimes say that we were more physician-centric than patient-centric, and we're trying to move away from that. So, for example, in some of the endeavors that we've done, we have a room service program for food and nutrition. So not everybody likes to eat dinner at 5 to 6. They might like to eat dinner at 7 or 8. So they have the option of calling down, ordering what they would like for their meals. They can have as many meals as they want a day. And they can have eggs at dinner if they want. So that was, you know, that to me is very patient-centered. We developed some clinics that are Saturdays and Sundays and are open till 7 p.m. to meet patients' needs and patients' preferences. We do, a, we have a patient family advisory council that when we're thinking of new things or new education or, you know, this is what we want to do with this, we go to them and we present it to them and say, what do you think about that? And, eh, I like this, I like that. Have you ever thought about? And we learn a lot from them. And it's very, very valuable. And we're still in our infancy with that. I mean, some of our specialty areas have support groups. How could we have done this better? What would it look like? You know, the whole patient-centered piece really came from pediatrics, which is one of the reasons I feel so fortunate to have worked in a pediatric environment, because you would never think about taking the family unit apart. And so in when you're dealing with adults, it really should be the same. And But sometimes, so we have no visiting hours. If you have a family member in here, you can visit whenever, whenever you want. Okay. We've done a much better job, in my opinion, with allowing your pets to visit. There used to be the just rule, no rule, no pets. Right. And that's very difficult for patients and for families and for loved ones. And um, not only do we have pet therapy, but we do allow people under certain, we have guidelines that their pet can come in and visit them. So that's really what I think, you know, patient-centeredness is. One day I was on a unit and there was a sign outside the door of this patient and it said, do not wake till 10. I thought, wow, that is just great. 
because I remember when I was, I was uh, what I call a real nurse, you know, <laughs> you, you delivered your meds at 6, you delivered your meds at 10, you delivered your meds at 12. There wasn't any individualization around it, but our nurses really do a great job with that and really individualize and making sure it's through the patient's eyes, not what meets their needs. Now, certainly, you know, that sounds great. There are some things that we can't always do that. Sure. And the other thing is we, we try to talk to patients about what their goals are. So if you're coming in to have your hip done and because you want to be able to run a marathon, then your physical therapy and your rehab is going to be very different than the person comes in who wants their hip done because they want to be able to walk into the kitchen. And we explain that to people, you know, and say to them, if this is what you want, then this is what you're going to have to agree to up front. And, you, and so it's really this having a conversation with somebody. So that's what I think patient-centeredness is. Nursing crosses into a, a, a lot of different departments. So there are nurses in the outpatient clinics, for example. What's your relationship with the nurses who are not in the departments that you directly oversee? As we get larger... And not all nurses directly report to me because we are in a very, very matrix environment. But nursing practice reports to the chief nursing officer. And nursing issues report to the chief nursing officer. So I have a very close relationship with all of my vice presidents and chiefs who have nurses in their area. They come to me. Their nurses come to me. It's a, it's, I think it's a really, it's a really great rela- relationship. It was very difficult in the beginning when it started happening because they were used to a very traditional model and they would say to me, well, we don't report to you anymore. I said, no, you still report because you're a nurse and I will always be there for you for nursing issues to help you through. And I'm fortunate because the colleagues that I work with who have nurses in their department, see me in that role. It's not an issue about territorial, not at all. It's about how we can best work together. And I do that with them because some of them, their business acumen is just incredible. And I'll go to them and say, hey, how do I do this? Help me with this. So that's how we work that. And I think people are pretty comfortable with it. And I also, you know, I try to, I I hold open forms on a quarterly basis. So people, anybody, well, anybody, it's open to anybody, can come and talk about issues and I do it so nurses can come and talk about nursing practice issues and things like that. Plus, as I mentioned earlier, we have something called Clinical Practice Council, which is used to be just nurses, but we've opened it up to all clinical people. And I sit on that as an advisor, and so we discuss lots of nursing practice issues there. How has the field of nursing evolved during your career? Uh, my observation is there's been a significant growth in the use of advanced practice nurses in a variety of fields. Mm-hmm. What have you seen kind of, is that significant or what other significant changes have happened? There's just been the roles for nurses have just quadrupled since I started practicing. I, I just think of some of the high risk case managers that we have who manage patients who are at high risk, have lots of comorbidities really need a lot of assistance on a regular basis and the first person they usually call is their nurse. We have nurse navigators who help manage certain cohorts of patients. We have five nurse navigators in our cancer center. One does breasts, one does GYN, one does thoracic and they manage that that patient population. 
We have population health analysts who are nurses. There's, there's, there, it's just, it's just so wonderful because there's so many opportunities. So what people used to think about going into nursing was either in, you know, is in the doctor's office or the school nurse or the person in the nursing home or at the bedside in the hospital. If the profession has just grown, it's, it's, it's wonderful, I think. And I think it's great because nurses are very trusted by their patients and their families that they work with and they can sometimes get in get very close to a patient and really help them maneuver the the difficult fragmented health system that we have so i think it's a great thing we have clinical informatics nurses who help develop our informatics systems who teach who optimize our records and things like that so that's just a few of the many things sure. that they do. So I had kind of divided your title into two parts, but maybe I'm maybe that's a mistake. Is that a do you see it as an extension? So the other part of your title is vice president of patient care services. What does that refer to? And is that a is that is, is that really just kind of an extension of your role as CNO? You think, or or is that a or is that really kind of two spheres that you've brought together? Well, you know, initially when I started out, I was my title was. Vice President of Patient Care Services, and then okay. I was promoted to the Chief Nursing Officer, okay. which is, you know, I think it's just like the C-suite issue, you know. But the Vice President of Patient Care Services is the responsibility, again, for who touches the patient. So, you know, pharmacy, food and nutrition, behavioral health services, social work, all of those people report up to me. You know, some of the areas that don't, such as respiratory, for example, or pulmonary, I have that matrix dotted line with, with some of them because we all work so closely together. So it really is looking at that whole broad expanse of where care to patients happens. So some of the things you just mentioned, pharmacy, behavioral services, mm-hmm. food, nutrition, in my experience, that's not necessarily typically under the uh, supervision of, of the Correct. nursing Correct. staff. So, so that, but so that rolls up under the patient care services. Correct, correct. Um, why is it beneficial for the organization to unify those services under the under under you as the chief nurse and and vice president for for patient care services? I, or is that just an, a, a coincidence, or just a happens no. because that's how you came through? The, well, it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, you know, there's there's models all over the country that some are strictly just nursing, and but I think there's so many similarities in people who go into nursing and into pharmacy and into respiratory therapy. We all have similar reasons why we do it. And our roles are actually very, very similar because it really is about being patient-centered. You know, years ago, the pharmacy was in the basement of the hospital, and today we have pharmacists on every unit. We have pharmacists that teach patients about medications. We have a pharmacy counseling program. So when the patient is being discharged, we have the pharmacists go up to the patient's room discuss their medications with them because what we find is that many, many readmissions are because patients either don't understand how to take their meds, they can't afford their meds, or they go home and there was such a flurry of activity when they were being discharged that they don't remember what was being said. So we've, we've, we've done that here. So I think 
it works well. And again, it goes back to that whole patient family centeredness piece of it. And sometimes when you don't, no disrespect to my colleagues who aren't clinical folks, but sometimes you don't have that mindset if you're a COO or CFO and it, it's not comfortable for you. And so I think it's helpful to have somebody who has that sort of philosophy and that mindset about patients and caring for patients and caring for the caregivers who take care of those patients. Because I think that's one thing we're seeing. It's just probably been happening for years, but the compassion fatigue because of the type of situations and sometimes patients that we have to deal with today. Certainly the whole epidemic of drugs and opioid abuse and, and heroin in New Hampshire is huge and very, very difficult. And it in the actual day-to-day caring of some of those patients, they can become abusive and violent. And you need to have peer-to-peer support for the people taking care of so they can, because they want to do the right thing, but they may not have the education regarding behavioral health patients. So they bring with them a stigma. And so they really can't care for that patient appropriately. And so I think it's, that's why I think it's important to, if they don't report to a clinical person, you as the COO pull in your clinical people to say, how can I help my team? And we're fortunate because we work really, really well together. And I can say to somebody, hey, I think there's, and like, oh yeah, okay, let's, can we work together to help with that? So. so speaking of your kind of the executive team, who makes up the senior executive team here at, the, at Wentworth Douglas? You have the CEO, president CEO. You report to him. Mm-hmm. Who else is kind of at the same? Well, it used to be small. It used to be myself, the CNO, and then the CFO, chief financial officer, the chief medical officer, the vice president of operations and the VP of human resources and the VP of strap planning. That's what it was like when I first came. Now we have a chief performance officer. We have a chief of human resources. We have a vice president of ambulatory services, chief strategy officer. I think that's it. So we've added like five additional people as we grow. Fairly flat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you mentioned when you were talking uh, to my class that you, you have a role with the board. Mm-hmm. What, is your, what is your role in interacting with the board, the board of trustees, provide oversight of the hospital? I am a non-voting member on the board of trustees. So I sit at the board of trustees meeting. I sit on strategic planning, which is a board meeting. I sit on quality improvement committee, which is a board meeting. I and I, I sit on a couple of other boards, community benefit. I sit on our home care board. And my role really is to be the voice of the patient. To be the voice of the patient. And frequently board members will say to me, How's that gonna affect the patient, Sheila? And in twenty ten there were significant budget constraints, and we had to we had to actually do we did early retirement program, and we actually had to re, had a reduction in force, and it was very difficult because the board was asking me some really tough questions, and I had to be absolutely honest. And sometimes there were things that I didn't necessarily agree with, and I had to speak up. But that's okay; it's the right thing to do, um, and that's what they expect from me. 
and I'm very, I'm very lucky because it's a board of community members who care deeply about this, deeply about this facility and this hospital, and they take their, they take their responsibility very, very seriously. And if you could see the amount of hours that they put in as unpaid volunteers, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And many of them have been on the board 20 years and they have long, long relationships with this facility and they challenge us. They really challenge us. And it's great. It's absolutely great. Now, granted, it's the first board I've ever sat on. Okay. So I really didn't know what, I think my first board, board meeting, I had no idea what to do or to say or to speak. And one of my colleagues said to me, you're not supposed to talk. I'm like, okay. And so my boss said to me, I want you to speak up. During my evaluation, my boss said to me, I want you to speak up more in board meetings. I said, well, the COO told me not to talk. And, and I find it, they're funny because they, they really, really listen when I talk. Not that they don't listen the, to the everybody, do. but the trustees, yeah. Okay. And, they're, and they're, they're a great group of people from all sorts of businesses and healthcare and all sorts of interesting, but they really care. When you talk to my students, you framed kind of how the healthcare industry was changing in terms of Berwick's triple aim, which you mentioned a second ago. Can you talk a little bit about the triple aim and how you see that as the, as, as kind of framing the future of healthcare and maybe give some examples of how Wentworth Douglas is trying to strategically adjust to meet those challenges? Well, if you look at the triple aim of service quality and cost and try to develop your strategies to align with, with each of those and then recognize where we're going in healthcare with population health and risk stratification and bundled payments and payment structures, um, it's really kind of daunting. The whole triple aim itself, I don't find daunting because certainly service is something that we're a service industry. We have to be responsive to quality because that's part of our mission. And most of us want to make sure that our patients have very, very high quality, that our outcomes are exceptional. And then we have a fiduciary responsibility. You know, we are a nonprofit, but we do have to, as, as the Sisters of Mercy used to say, no mission, no mar, no margin, no mission. So you have to be able to make money to reinvest it into the organization. You know, hiring dosimetrists to there's only, you know, 200 of them in the country. It's an expensive endeavor. It's an expensive FTE, but it's absolutely necessary if you're going to have a cancer center where you have Linux and things like that, stereotactic radiosurgery. So you have to reinvest. So you have to have, you have to have a margin. But now when we start to think about sort of the service piece of it and how do you serve a population that we need to manage, then you need to really start thinking outside the walls of the hospital. And, you know, it's a cliche, but providing them the right service at the right time at the right cost is really what people want. And so you have to have a myriad, as we do, you know, we have express cares, we have prompt care, and we have our ED, and all at different price points and all with different levels of service, but in different hours of service meeting those patients' needs. And you really need to start looking at that. You know, we, we own a health club 
that years ago, I guess, used to be a racquetball club and with a bar, is my understanding. And, you know, now... With an alcohol yeah, serving yeah, bar. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Before my time, <laughs> but people talk about it. But it's part of our corporate entity, and we're looking at health maintenance programs. You know, we have weight loss programs. We have a prehab and a rehab program up there for some of our patients, not just orthopedic, but some of our cancer patients to help them get back on track. We have nutritionists up there. So it's really about managing the population and managing the health of your community. And you do need to start out young. We have, we're fortunate because we have an early learning center and the children in the early learning center who I think at probably age six or seven, their facility is now located at the works. And so it's, they're so fortunate, these kids, because they can swim they have fabulous gyms, and so physical activity, you know, is something that we hope that they start learning early and continue with that. So I think that's really kind of what I see as, as uh, service quality and cost or the triple aim as we move forward with some of the population health strategies that we need to look at. Okay. Let's transition and talk a, a little bit about leadership. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? I think number one is to be authentic. You can't possibly know everything, and you will make mistakes. And as long as you can say, I had the best of intentions and I made a mistake, you'll be real to people, your boss will understand, or maybe I'm just fortunate because I have a great boss, but I think if you're a leader, you have to walk the talk because if that's what you're, you have to be able to, to do what you're asking your staff to do. So I maintain that if I'm asking them to be the best possible person they can be to that person that they're taking care of, then I have to be and my organization has to be that to them. I think the other piece for me is it's about working on a team. You can't do it by yourself. And you have to say thank you and you have to recognize others. I think that's incredibly important. I think visibility is also important. It's fascinating because no matter what I do, if I, if I do a, a nursing satisfaction survey, no matter how visible I think I am, it will always come back to say, I want to see her more. Um, There's only one of you, though. I know. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. So you really have to decide, is it that important for me to do X in my office on okay. the computer, or should I be out there? Yeah. Because my being out there, listening to what's going on, will provide me so much more information than me sitting in these four walls. So I try to get out to all areas and, and, be, and be visible. And staff do. They call me. They talk to me. They email me. They say, I've got this idea. What do you think? And so to me, that's absolutely fabulous. And I used to know everybody's name, but we've grown so much now that... I I don't remember everybody's name. Can you give an example of a difficult leadership lesson you had to learn maybe the hard way? So something you something that maybe didn't go quite the way you expected, and you maybe learned from it. So this so there's probably a couple, and I think one of the biggest ones for me is trusting my gut, trusting my intuition, hiring people that I second guessed, and I hired them anyway. And I've come to regret it. And it's, I think for me, it's, it's something that I need to always, always be mindful of and do a better job with that. 
And I think the second thing for me that's been difficult is my looking at someone who I believe is an absolute stellar leader and needs to be recognized as that and my executive team not feeling the same way. And that's, that has been, that's difficult. That's very difficult. And it's just something, it's one of those things. So how do you deal with that conflict well, when, when it, you see the person as a stellar yep. leader and, and yep. they don't, how do you deal with that? You have to live with it. Okay. This is the nimbleness of it that okay. I speak of. Uh, you have to live with it because you can't keep beating, beating your CEO down, your COO down, your whole team down. You have to state it, state the facts, and when there are opportunities, state them again, but don't be obnoxious about it. And in time, it will happen. And that's exact, that is truly what I have seen happen here. So at the time I thought it should happen, it didn't happen. But six months later, we were all able to get to the same space. And sometimes it's in the moons are aligned or, there's something else going on in somebody else's mind that you may not know of. There's another strategy that's being planned, bringing somebody else on. So you you have to live with it. I think that's the one thing a leader has to learn. Sometimes you just need to let go of it. As long as it's not going to do any harm, obviously. I mean, if it were a patient safety issue, that'd be a different story. Or the person told me they were going to leave. Sometimes you just have to let Sometimes you just have to let go of it. Yeah. Can you give an example of a leadership challenge that you are particularly proud of having met? We started doing 360 evaluations of the executive team about three years ago. And it's, it's sometimes, you know, even though things are anonymous, when there's only 12 of you, it really can't be that anonymous. So having the courage to be able to speak the truth to your colleague in a way that won't hurt them or demoralize them is probably very, very, is very, very difficult. But once you do it and it works out well, it is something that you're very proud of having done and then it comes easily. Now I can, now it's so much easier for me to talk to this one colleague and say, you know what? You know what we talked about earlier? It's happening again. <laughs> and they saying it to you. Okay. They saying it to you. It goes both ways. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. You know, I wasn't particularly thrilled to go over my 360. Yeah. And so a 360 for folks who don't know, you, you've got your boss is going to give you an yep. evaluation, your colleagues, yep. and then the people you supervise yep. are also going to tell you yep. what they think. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's amazing because some of the things that I thought I was doing well, they did not feel that at all. So we developed action plans and, you know, you, you laugh about it and you say, oh, my God, at this age, I'm not going to be able to change that. But you do. You actually can. If it, You know, it's because it's important to you. Yeah. And you can. So you can ask more questions. You can be more data-driven. You can be more succinct. You can do whatever you need to do if you really want to do it. So... But it's hard. It's hard. And I'm just proud that I was able to get through it. What, so you mentioned a minute ago about, you know, one of your, one of your challenges has been listening to your gut about hiring leaders. But what do you look for when you hire a leader? And what do you look for when you evaluate a leader? I think hiring people is really about the passion that they bring to what they do, whatever department it is. You know, when you're, when you're interviewing somebody, I, enough people do, 
behavioral, motivational type interviewing. Mm -hmm. You know, so by the time someone gets to you, they're through their eighth interview, someone has always asked them, so what do you do when? And, you know, anybody can answer that. So I try to, when I'm interviewing people, to understand what really makes them excited and what they really can't stand. Because it gives me a better insight of how they'll work in the organization, how they'll work on a team. You know, it's okay to say I. Not everything has to be we, especially as you you move up. But you have, to, in my opinion, I have to see where they're including other people. They're including the team. They're saying, you know, I started this project and I realized that I didn't have the right people. So I went back and I asked da 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 to join me and help me and. So that's what I really look for. And their flexibility. If they, you know, I work Monday through Friday and I leave every day at 7. You know, even though I'm working 60 hours a week, that's not very flexible to me. And to have some courage, you know, that's hard. That's, And I always find it, when I'm interviewing somebody, what, what they ask me is, I'll never forget, I had a hospitalist ask me. No, excuse me. I asked him, so why come to Wentworth Douglas? And he said to me, are you kidding me? Have you seen the schedule? I thought, oh my God, I can't believe this guy just said that to me. I said, oh no, yeah, I know it's a great schedule. So uh, no, don't hire him, okay? <laughs> because he was primarily concerned That's about his That's all he cared about. That's all he cared about, his schedule. His needs. And, there wasn't you know. one mention about a patient, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I love older patients, you know? I love working on a team. I love... And then evaluation is really... We have become... Fortunately, although sometimes it's difficult, a very goal metric driven organization. And we've got dashboards all over the place. And it's good. It's good. And so now when I'm evaluating people, I have a much better objective way of evaluating them. So I can say to them, you know, these are your met, these are your quality metrics and you didn't, you know, you had 16, you met 14. And they say to me, okay, well, remember over here, we hadn't opened up the practice. We lost the, we lost the physician. I'm like, that's right. I remember that. I'm not going to ding them on that because it really was out of their control. I have some, I have a challenge with this whole accountability structure where you're accountable for everything, but you can't affect something that may happen in the program. So I'm really struggling when people will say, well, you are accountable for that, but I couldn't manage that. It was something totally out of my control. So I think sometimes we can go overboard with the metrics and the accountability. I just like to listen to how they tried to achieve it, what the barriers were, what the obstacles were. Was it, import was it really, really important to them? And evaluate them that way. But we, we have a pretty rigid system of you know, you get X number of points for this and X number of points for that, and yeah. You've worked in a number of organizations kind of all over the country. What is organizational culture, and why is it important to you? Ooh, I think it really gives you a flavor of, of what your work and what, what, you're going to be, what you're going to be held accountable for and how you're going to be able to survive in an environment. And as I said, when I was looking for a vice president position, I interviewed in, I interviewed in three places. 
one place was a fabulous place, fabulous, fabulous, but it was in Minnesota and I interviewed in January and there was no way I could live there, no matter what. Mm -hmm. The other was a research institute and my expertise and their expertise was totally different. And thank God I wasn't offered the job because I wouldn't have taken, it wouldn't have worked for me. But I came here and it was all about the culture. The culture was about, this is a family. We take care of our families. This is a community hospital that wants to be the best and the brightest of community hospitals. It's about teamwork. It's about how can we make it happen. It's about not saying no. And to me, that culture was, wow, this is fabulous. This is just fabulous. And you still see that here every day, every single day. I don't know when you walk to the front door if someone was willing to help you and people were smiling. And But we have people come here all the time and say that the culture here is just amazing. And that's what we want to maintain. How does a successful leader shape organizational culture? What do you do to try to maintain? I mean, you were very excited about it when you came. How do you, what's your role in kind of making sure that stays the way it is or improves? I think when I talk about being the voice of the patient, I'm also the voice of the staff. I'm very close to the staff. The staff are very close to me. They'll tell me things that they won't tell other people. And I have to be able to share that in an appropriate way with the executive team. Um, I have to sometimes remind them of what may be nothing to the executive team is so important to those members of the team. And we may look and say, and um, I, I have to remind them, no, this is really important. We have to do something about it. It's funny, when we, uh, when our home care company was purchased by a for-profit entity, one of the biggest things the staff wanted, they were worried about that, they were worried a lot about that, but one of the biggest things they wanted, they wanted to be invited to the summer picnic, and they wanted still to get their turkey at Thanksgiving. And so we wrote that into the contract. But it's those things that make an organization a family, a, a place where people want to be and want to work hard and really want to give back to. We talked a bit about mentorship earlier. Does Wentworth Douglas have a formal mentorship program? Mm. Well, you know, when we did the 360s, we had opportunities to develop action plans and then work with others who did who did really well at what our opportunities were. So, for example, I worked with another VP who would say to me, can you just help mentor me in meetings? And okay. though it's not a real mentorship, mm -hmm. it's being invited by someone to help them grow, which I think mentoring is all about. So I think we have more... We, we sometimes say we have a mentorship program and some people will, some people have come to me and said, will you mentor me? Like, absolutely. I'm happy to do it. And so, you know, we've had a very formal, we meet monthly, we go over things, um, and it's great. Other people, it may be very informal. So I wouldn't say we have a formal mentorship program at all. Okay. So in closing, what advice do you have for young people? <laughs> looking to go into either the nursing field or into healthcare administration and ultimately leadership, whether that's a clinician looking to mm -hmm. switch into, uh, to do as you did and move into leadership or, or a, an administrator like my students. 
I think it's really important for people to lead with their heart. What gets them excited? What makes them feel good at the end of the day? I actually had this conversation with someone just yesterday, and I said, no matter how bad the day is, I feel like I have been able to make a difference in someone's life, whether it be one of the staff. One of the other day, there was a pharmacist, and I said to her, that dress you have on, that color is absolutely beautiful. And she was just, and, you know, it's because I'm the CNO, and she holds me in this crazy high regard. And, but it was honest. It was authentic. Um, so, number one, be authentic. Go with your heart. But secondly, I think it's important, go shadow. See what it's really like. Because if you're joining an organization Ask to spend some time. We do this now even in nursing, hiring nurses. We ask them. We may interview them, assure that all their credentials, et cetera, are appropriate, and then we ask them to shadow for four hours or a day, whatever they prefer, to see if it's a fit for them and it's a fit for us. Because there's no point in wasting all those hours orienting somebody to find out this isn't, they don't want to do this. They don't want to be patient-centric. You know, they want to work in the basement and they want to do whatever it is and put out the product. So I think that is really, really important. And most organizations, you know, if, if they say to you no, recognize that that's the culture it is and you don't want to go there. But if they open you with welcome arms and say yes, do it to see if it fits because you spend the majority of your life at work. And you better like it, or you're going to be miserable. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed the interview. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.